Amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. At this time, I invite you to find your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark. I want to welcome our visitors. It's good to see you all here. And as you are turning there, uh, I'll just remind everybody that right after the service today, we'll migrate over to Camp Gilead for a barbecue and some uh, fellowship. So uh, if, you're, if you're visiting and you'd like to come, we'd love to have you. And uh, we'll get you there somehow. But right now, we must deal with the most important thing, and that is the preaching of the word. Mark chapter 1. Today we find ourselves needing to explore verses 21 to 28. So please follow along with me as I read aloud verses 21 to 28. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. The word of God reads, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news spread about him. The news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. The title of the message today is the multifaceted authority of Christ. The multifaceted authority of Christ. Did you know? That you don't always have to ask somebody what their view of Jesus is. Sometimes. All you really have to do is watch how they live and what they say. Watch what they prioritize. Watch what they minimalize. Watch what they pursue. Watch what they repudiate. And also watch what they are passionate about and what they could care less about. A professing Christian who says Christianity just boils down to John 3.16, eliminating God's love over all of his other attributes. That person views Jesus as some kind of romanticized caricature, denying the truth that he will one day judge the world in righteousness. A professing Christian who invests his or her life in politics and activism at the expense of serving the church and growing in Christ-likeness, views Jesus as the prime example of a social justice warrior and nothing more. A professing Christian who works long hours on end needlessly, keyword needlessly, 
As if the goal of life on earth was the progression of human achievement or prosperity, views Jesus as mainly and merely as a good, moral, ethical idealist. A professing Christian who spends more time vacationing and pursuing entertainment rather than being discipled and making disciples, views Jesus as one little component of life, not the sum of life, as Paul states clearly in Colossians 3, verse 4. A professing Christian who lives in rampant immorality, suppressing the conscience, views Jesus as a get-out-of-hell free card at best, and at worst, a teeny-weeny little deity. I made that one up. With no authority at all. Scripture does indeed deal with all of those false views of Jesus. We can go to Paul's sermon on Mars Hill and read, God has fixed a day, set a day, elected a day, which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. How about the shocking statement that we read about in, in John? Where Jesus is having this, this kind woman pour perfume, expensive perfume on, perfume on him, and the disciples say, wait, we should be selling that and giving the money to the poor. Remember what Jesus said? This is Jesus speaking. He says, for you always will have the poor with you. But you will not always have me. So apparently, Jesus was not primarily, again, primarily, key word, concerned with the social welfare of the community. He was, he was prioritizing his followers to worship him. In John 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one, which is a strong rebuke to those who only see the Lord as some moral guru. He is most definitely not a moral guru. He is God incarnate, worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. Amen? He is the Lord of lords, possessing all authority, both in heaven and on this earth, according to Matthew 28, verse 18. Therefore, he is not only well-deserving of our worship and honor, we owe him, listen, we owe him our reverent submission as our personal Lord. I wish I could unpack all of these correct views of Jesus more in depth, but as usual, time does not permit me to do so. However, we are going to deal with one of those views a little bit more in depth this morning. We're going to deal more in depth with the absolute authority of Christ, because that's precisely what's revealed in the next paragraph in Mark. Picking up where we left off last week, we arrive at a text in the Gospel of Mark that specifically deals with, as I said, the multifaceted authority of Jesus. Mark 1:21 to 28 not only deals with that doctrine, but it also marks a transition in Mark's revelation. 
verses 1 to 20, was simply an introduction to the book in which he revealed, Mark revealed, to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the divine king, the son of the one true living God. In the first eight verses, as you may remember, we saw that Jesus was preceded by a royal forerunner. In verses 9 to 11, he experienced a divine coronation at his baptism. In verses 12 to 13, he defeated his archenemy, the prince of darkness, in the wilderness. In verses 14 and 15, he proclaimed the sum of his kingdom message of salvation. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then, as we saw last week in verses 16 to 20, he commanded his kingdom slaves to follow him. And he promised, I will make you become fishers of men. So now that Jesus' credentials have been made clear in Mark's introduction, he now transitions to the public ministry of Lord of our Lord. And you could say that he appears in the public eye with a bang. According to Mark, the very first thing that Jesus does is have a loud, abrupt, dramatic, confrontational, head-on showdown with a demon. And not just in the public square. He does this in the very place religious Jews assembled to hear doctrine from their leaders. What's put on public display here in this passage is the cosmic authority of Jesus Christ over unbelieving sinners and the satanic spiritual forces that can hold sinners captive all the way to hell. So Mark the Evangelist, he plainly exposes, he plainly puts before us three distinct facets of Jesus' multifaceted authority which will help you to rightly view, rightly view Jesus as Lord over our lives and over the spiritual forces of darkness. Let's look at the first facet in verses 21 and 22. It's the authority of Christ in his teaching. The authority of Christ in his teaching. Verses 21 and 22. Let's read verse 21 again. It says, They went, in, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue And began to teach. Jesus was no stranger to the synagogue life. It was the Jewish center of community life, which Jesus grew up in. It was used as a place of local worship, it was used as a meeting hall, a school, a courtroom. Traditionally, the synagogue would be formed in a place where there was at least two, or no, excuse me, ten Jewish men. So a, a, a small village, maybe like Carnation, would only have one or two synagogues. But larger cities, probably like maybe Seattle, would have numerous. One of the primary activities that you'd find uh, the Jews partaking in inside the synagogue was... You guessed it. Public reading of scripture and exposition. It goes all the way back to Nehemiah. And that's the motto we continue to follow today. But unlike we Christians who are used to seeing um, and having one guy do most of the teaching, 
the Jews had a policy known as, quote-unquote, freedom of the synagogue, which allowed qualified men in the congregation to deliver the exposition of an Old Testament passage. That's important to understand because that privilege was extended to Jesus on this particular occasion, and Jesus took advantage of it. He goes for it. He stands up and teaches. Mark does not tell us what he taught, but it must have had quite the impact because notice the people's response in verse 22. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. So take special note right here. If you'd like to highlight your Bible, highlight this. Jesus taught with authority. The word authority speaks of ruling. It speaks of dominion, jurisdiction, full right, power, and privilege. This means that Jesus taught with absolute conviction, objectivity, dominion, and clarity. He spoke the truth with unwavering confidence, as you would expect a king to. One commentator describes Jesus' teaching style in this way. Quote, his teaching was absolute, not arbitrary. It was logical and concrete, not evasive or obscure. His arguments were reasonable, inescapable, and focused on essential matters. End quote. And that style simply stunned the people. Because it was in stark contrast to what they were used to hearing. The scribes were known by their esoteric pontifications and endless dead quotations of other rabbis. They often taught in ways that were mystical, muddled, and often focused on trivial details. Whereas Christ comes along, he takes the platform, and he delivers biblical teaching with power, precision, and gravitas. And their response to this authoritative style of teaching was awe and wonder. Now, perhaps the best thing that we can compare it to today is when we consider how many churchgoers have their minds blown away when they become exposed to sound, precise, bold, biblical, expository preacher for the first time. I often hear, often, how people who grew up in church hearing milky, watered-down, dumbed-down, short, repetitive, boring homilies while never being confronted with who God is, never being instructed about the weighty things in Scripture, and never being confronted about sin or warned about the reality of heaven and hell. But when they hear a true Gifted, trained, spirit-filled man stand up and proclaim with authority, this is what God has said. Here is what it means. And now you are personally responsible to conform your life to it in every aspect. When 
when they hear that for the first time, it's common for them to be awestruck. Can you relate? I definitely can. I was saved at a Baptist church that did not do expository preaching. I was saved at a Baptist church that taught the same thing pretty much every Sunday for 20 minutes, and that was it. And when my friend demonstrated enough love for me to hand me a CD of an exposition of the parable of Legend the Rich Man, I was blown away. blown away and that served as the foundation that set the standard for true biblical preaching those of you who know me well probably know who i'm talking about so i want to be like jesus in every way i can don't you want that for me i want that for you i want you to be like jesus with god's help and i'm convinced based on a study of this text That one way we can all be more like Jesus is to speak his word with authority. In your evangelism, don't cower. Don't shy away from having confidence and saying, the Bible says. This is what Jesus said. That's my position. That's what I believe. And you should too. Say it with some authority. Because you represent the king of kings, don't you? Don't you? So therefore, when you speak his word, not our own, it's absolutely appropriate to deliver it with some authority. Respectfully, but authoritatively, because Christ's words are God's words, and God's words should bind the conscience of every living creature. Amen? Now let's look at the second facet of Jesus' multifaceted authority. It's his authority and his judgment. The authority of Christ in his judgment, verses 23 and 24. It says, Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Here we see right away, The very first time, the very first time Jesus opens his mouth in public, he encounters strong opposition right away. It's amazing. And this opposition is not just by some cranky old Jew, right? It's by a demon. He encounters opposition from the demonic forces, and his mere presence sent them into a loud, frenzied panic. In short, these demons rebelliously questioned Jesus' teaching, not because they disagreed, but because they feared him. They feared his judgment. You see, they knew very well who Jesus was. They addressed him as the Holy One of God, which is a title of deity. Strikingly similar to an Old Testament title of the Holy One of Israel, which was attributed to Yahweh. This title is meant to convey Jesus' infinite, perfect holiness. Only God can be perfect, infinite, and holy. 
Now, you should be asking yourself, how did the demon know this about Jesus? No one else did. No one else knew, did they? Well, if you think about it, later we'll see that the Jewish leaders reject Christ, chapters 3 and 22. The crowds were observant and curious, but largely uncommitted and confused. Chapter 6 and John 2.24. And even the disciples, who generally did love Jesus and followed him. But, but even they at times were hard-headed and hard-hearted. And Jesus called them out on that in chapter 8, verse 17. So how did these demons know who Jesus was? Well, they knew him because they knew very well that it was he who created them. Colossians 1.16 says, says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, that is Jesus. So these demons knew Jesus because Jesus was their creator. And not only was Jesus there at their creation, but remember this. This is where your doctrine of the Trinity is important. He was also there when the demons were judged and excommunicated out of heaven. He was there. Now, another question you should be asking yourself is this. Why were these demons so terrified? Why? Well, think about it. The people weren't scared. They were just awestruck by the authoritative tone of Jesus. But these people, these fickle people, they, they did not possess one ounce of fear. But the demon did. Why? Because this unclean spirit knew that Jesus, listen, was coming to lay down the law. They knew Jesus was coming to destroy them. How do I know that? Because of John, 1 John 3, verse 8. 1 John 3, verse 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So it's no wonder at all why every time a demon encountered Christ, they were self-induced, self-induced down to a helpless, dreadful creature. Now that should make you want to praise Christ. That should make you want to praise Jesus. It should make you want to rejoice in knowing or being reminded that your Lord cannot be beaten or overthrown or swayed by evil. Take comfort in knowing that Christ is the judge of the evil forces. Because he's good. A good judge executes his judgment justly and righteously. If you think of it this way, if Jesus wasn't good, then he would be a bad judge for all to fear and flee from. If Christ did not come and judge this demon, I wouldn't worship him. Because he would be a bad judge. 
if he was a bad judge, he would be unjust, corrupt, and unrighteous. And therefore, he would not punish sin. He would not destroy the works of the devil. But on the contrary, he would reward sinners. And he would strengthen evil. But that's not Jesus. He's good. He's just. He's righteous. He's merciful. And so since he is good, his judgments are right and pure and just. That means that the very nature and character of Jesus demands that he be a judge, not just for Satan and his angels. Not just for unbelieving sinners, but for us too. All, all of us will be judged. Believers will be judged at the Bema seat, where the saints are rewarded based on how faithfully they serve Christ in the church age. 2 Corinthians 5. After the millennium and before the new heaven and new earth, Satan will be released from his prison. Then he will draw the demons into a suicidal assault against Christ and his bride. He will be defeated. And then he will be thrown into like a fire and brimstone where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20, verse 7 to 10. And so we cannot, we cannot in good conscience talk about Christ as judge and ignore the truth of Scripture with regard to his judgment of unbelievers. The Bible teaches clearly, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 14, that unbelievers will appear before what's called the great white throne judgment. And there they will stand before the bar of divine justice and be judged according to their deeds. After that judgment, the Bible says, Revelation 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now at this time, I don't blame you if you're wondering, Heitman, what does this have to do with the encounter between Jesus and the demon in Mark 1? Well, it has everything to do with it. Because the final judgments where Christ will sit as judge, they are very, they are vitally important for us to understand in this context because we need to know what the demons knew. This knowledge is what drove the demon to confront Jesus in the synagogue. They knew that Jesus is the supreme judge who will not only throw the demons into the abyss, but also, this is not an easy doctrine to teach, but it's biblical. Not only will Jesus throw demons into the abyss, the Bible says that he will also throw unbelievers into the lake of fire. So, brothers and sisters, we need to know more than what the demon knew in Mark 1. We can know more 
And there's no excuse for not knowing more. Because why? We have the complete canon. Right here. While the people in the time of Christ didn't. So if we're going to take the Bible seriously, we must not forget or ignore that God, in the person of Christ, is a righteous judge. And therefore cannot let the guilty go unpunished in the end. If he did, he would be corrupt. Like a human judge who would dare to let a killer back on the streets without paying his fine. So, all of this talk about Jesus having authority as judge over Satan, the demons, us, and the unbelievers, it begs the question for you yourself to answer, how will Jesus judge me? And I must remind you, if you think that you will stand before Christ, believing that you deserve an innocent verdict because of your goodness, because of righteousness, because of sacraments, because of anything, you will fall. You will be condemned. The only way that you will hear an innocent verdict is if you have saving faith in Christ alone. On Judgment Day, your only defense will be, God, I know I'm guilty and I know it. I own it. But Christ offered his life for mine. He paid the debt I owe to you. And he has caused me, listen, to die to self and become born again. So that I can be forgiven made new, and live eternally. The only way that you will find salvation on Judgment Day is if you have, by grace through faith, been dressed in the righteousness of Christ alone. Did you know that's what you proclaim today? Did you know that you preach that to yourself today? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You sung that, didn't you? Do you know what you meant when you sung it? How about the fourth verse? It's even much deeper. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Wow. In that wonderful, rich, beautiful hymn, we see the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the second coming, the doctrine of imputation, and the doctrine of the final judgment. So you see, even in our music, you are being reminded Sunday after Sunday and perhaps even instructed for the first time about how we will all stand before the throne be judged by Jesus. And only those who are dressed in his righteousness will be permitted to enter into the joy of our master. Nothing more, nothing less will do. So I love you enough to ask you, are you ready? Are you ready for this judgment day? Can you say with confidence 
that you will stand in the judgment? Or are you compelled to say right now as you sit, I don't know. I don't know if I'll stand in the judgment. If you aren't positive, you should be afraid. But I have good news. The truth is that you can walk out of here knowing for sure that you can stand to the throne and live if you repent and believe in the gospel. This is what the demons knew, my friends. They knew these truths. That's why they confronted Jesus. They had the audacity to confront the Holy One of God in the synagogue while he was teaching. Because they knew these things. You know what they also know? That there is no redemption for them. So that just fuels their hatred for Christ. They knew King Jesus as the judge. And therefore we all must know it. Acknowledge it and respond appropriately. The third facet of Jesus' multifaceted authority is the authority of his power. The authority of his teaching, number one. The authority of his judgment, number two. And the authority of his power, number three, verses 25 to 28. Look in your Bible again at verse 25. It says, Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. So we see here plainly clear evidence of Jesus' divine power. Notice that Jesus had no discussion with them. He didn't argue with them. He didn't want to say, let's have a discussion. He didn't want to reason with them. He didn't want to negotiate. He definitely didn't politely request, quiet down. He stood up with authority and gave them two commands. He told the demon to shut your mouth, and he obeyed. Then Jesus told them to be gone, and he obeyed. Notice also that Jesus did not rely on a mystical liturgical ritual. He simply spoke with kingly authority, and the demon got a glimpse, a small taste of what's to come for them in the final judgment. And like every other fallen angel, the unclean spirit was no match for the sovereign power of King Jesus. And this power, it was unmistakable because the audience, look, verse 27, they were amazed. They were not only amazed by his teaching, his, his, his authoritative teaching, but they were amazed, astounded, so much so that the text says that they started to debate among themselves. Saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And then immediately, verse 28, the news about him spread everywhere into the surrounding district of Galilee. So they were so stunned by what they had just witnessed that they didn't even know what to think. 
And so they did what confused, bewildered religious people do. They start to argue. (laughs) And they talk. The religious leaders would vehemently debate over the person of Christ from here on out. And from here on out, all over Galilee and Israel, the excited crowds would spread news in the entire land. This was the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Now, I want to take a little bit of time this morning to deal with an, an issue in contemporary theology. So this is going to be fun. I want to tackle an issue in contemporary theology that you may be interested in. And it's the idea of demon possession. Sooner or later, if you haven't already, you're going to have to settle in your thinking the issue of, what about demon possession today? Does it happen? And if so, how do we treat it? Fair question, right? How, are we going to deal with that question biblically? Well, well, based, based on what can be gleaned from Scripture, sola scriptura, I think we have to be extremely careful and cautious and slow to label somebody with erratic behavior as being demon-possessed. Again, I've said this before, and I'll repeat it over and over again, because I live in the same world you do. Don't let Hollywood, pop culture, and fictional tales define your theology in any area. Not even Christian movies, like War Room. Allow an honest, exegetical, literal, historical, grammatical, hermeneutic. Let a study through those lenses of God's word define your theology of demons and all things pertaining to spiritual warfare. So first, I just, I just want to extract some observations to help us think through this a little bit. First, we must observe that demon possession was uniquely exposed during the time of Jesus. And only twice in the, in the book of Acts. Chapter 16 and chapter 19. And if you go back and read the account in Acts 19, you'll see that the pathetic men who tried to, to perform an exorcism failed. And they literally got hurt. So, and, and, so that's it. There's, there's, there's the, the exorcisms that Jesus did in the Gospels. And then, and then you have twice in the book of Acts, and one was a, a flubber. Then you go to the Old Testament. How about the Old Testament? Well, outside of Genesis 6, which there's, as you know, a lot of debate on how to interpret that passage. Um, Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2. Other than that, there are no recorded instances of demon possession at all. None. Second observation. We must admit, we must admit that there are zero commands in the epistles to perform exorcisms. None. Third, this is where it gets really fun. We must be willing to compare the characteristics of currently alleged cases of demon possession with the actual historical cases in the Gospels. Got to compare the two. 
And, and we will unpack this in depth when I get to Mark 5, but if we use the narrative of the Gerasene demoniac in Mark 5 as our primary example, you will see clearly that demon-possessed men, number one, had an unnatural, freakish, superhero-like strength. Go back and read Mark 5. You'll see that this demoniac could not even be subdued with chains. Shocking. And number two, he acted like a complete raging lunatic. You know, not just a little bit off his rocker. You know, a lot of people like that, right? A lot of people just crazy. But this guy was screaming day and night in the tombs, in the mountains, and even says he was gashing himself with stones. And number three, the most important characteristic I think we need to consider as we compare alleged cases today of demon possession and true cases in the Bible, we have to see that, like in Mark 1, these demons, they had special divine knowledge, didn't they? So, it would be extremely rare to ever find a man or woman legitimately possessed with an actual demon today. Just because someone is exhibiting some form of sinful, irrational behavior does not indicate the person is dealing with a demon. Some people are just nuts. Some need to be locked up in a crazy house. Some people are just influenced by mind-altering intoxicants, you know, and the long-term effect of drugs and alcohol can just start to damage your mind, right? But I will say, because some of you might be saying, oh, are you saying that it can never happen, it never will again, never? I'm not saying that. I do believe strongly that demonic activity does exist today, but it takes a different form. Today, and even since the beginning of the church age, really, if you know anything about church history, the demonic realm has had its dwelling, comfortably, listen, within the confines of apostate religion. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul said, In later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, evil spirits, demonic spirits. And who remembers what Paul says after that? Doctrines of demons. So, by way of application, be less watchful about a raging lunatic coming into this church or into your home. Could happen, but not likely. But listen, my precious sheep, be very watchful about false teaching finding your ear via books you read. I don't know what you guys all read during the week. Blogs you read, magazines you read, even if they're secular, they can draw you away. Be watchful about the sermons that you listen to. 
and be watchful with regard to the people you associate with. They could turn your ear to false teaching, which will turn you away from your first love. If the demonic forces were to gain a foothold in your life, I promise you, it will be through the medium of a false teacher disguised as what? Angel of light. Just like the man with the unclean spirit in Mark 1 gained a foothold in the synagogue that Jesus visited. We don't know how long he was there. We don't know the damage he did in that synagogue. But that's how the demonic force influenced the Jews of Jesus' day. They infiltrated the religion and turned it into a system of works righteousness. That goes on today, so be careful. Be watchful. Do not let the false teachers speak with authority in your life. Do you know who you ought to let speak with authority in your life? Jesus. It's only he that should speak with the multifaceted authority. It's only he that should act as Lord. And so we must view Jesus in that way, not merely as a good teacher, not merely as a moral idealist, nor a misunderstood social activist. We must see Christ. We must view him as the authoritative teacher, the authoritative judge, and the authoritative king, exercising his power to accomplish his will. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have revealed to us these truths. Thank you that it's clear. May we all meditate on these things and be more conformed to your image as a result.